Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to Patreon emails. But before I do that, I just want to remind everyone that we are switching the podcast, the main podcast feed, to another location. And if something goes wonky, feel free to email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or try just unsubscribing and resubscribing to the podcast. I don't want to lose anybody. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, this patron email is from Joe. Joe says, hi, Kirk and friends. I am a licensed master's level psychologist working with some difficult teen clients and believe that motivational interviewing could be very useful to help them decrease some of their symptoms and initiate more change behavior. Would it be possible for you to talk about motivational interviewing, please? Yes, patron Joe, I would love to talk about motivational interviewing. It's a related uh, theory that of a theory of change or technique of change, technique of therapy uh, to a lot of the other therapies that I use. So basically, in a nutshell, motivational interviewing emerged out of substance use uh, treatment. Uh, you know, this is, the, you know, everything I'm about to say is my impression of motivational interviewing and of substance use treatment. So if I get some things wrong, um, I apologize, and, and it's possible. But I, I've worked over the 20 years off and on with dual diagnosis people. I, I actually had a job for a while, a full-time job, working as a therapist at a substance use treatment center and worked side-by-side side with a lot of people. So I absorbed a lot of the attitudes, or I observed a lot of the attitudes, and uh, watched a lot of the types of philosophies of change and philosophies of treatment that, that chemical dependency people use, including motivational interviewing. So in a nutshell, in the past, substance use treatment, the, the counselors, the, the chemical dependency counselors, uh, in general, would have a supportive but, but more of, a, of an adversarial relationship with their, with their clients. For, for instance... You know, a client comes in and says, oh, you know, I relapsed on <clears throat> using alcohol. And the chemical dependency counselor would say, oh, okay, well, let's get you back on the wagon, right? And, the, you know, the alcoholic would say, well, I'm not quite sure because I, you know, I'm thinking maybe I could drink every now and then. And the counselor would say, uh, we've already been over this. You, you know, you know that you can't drink and let me tell you why you can't drink. So that would be, again, in a nutshell, I'm characterizing literally millions of, of counselors, but uh, in a nutshell, that was kind of the, the mode, which, you know, which is that the counselor is, um, you know, helping and, and being nice and not being a dick, uh, hopefully, but, but telling the client what is up, you know look, we've been over this before and we've been down this road before. When you drink it, you know, maybe once or twice you can get away with drinking just a few beers, but eventually you're drinking every day and it's 12 drinks every day. And remember what happened last time you went down this road? And, um, you know, and this isn't 
of course, the only mode uh, or the only example I can give in this mode, but I, I hope it demonstrates the, the kind of philosophy of traditional chemical dependency treatment. Well, motivational interviewing emerged. I'm not sure exactly when. My guess is it emerged in the, in the 90s. I remember hearing about it first in the 90s, but it could have emerged earlier. And I think what happened was uh, there, there was a there was a movement kind of sweeping across the therapeutic world uh, in the 80s, particularly in family therapy, that was more collaborative. Um, you know, we we come from a the psychotherapy, you know, boy, this is going to be a, a long discussion of the history of psychotherapy that is hard to describe and hard to summarize. But but in general, outside of the chemical dependency world, you know, those of us within the psychotherapy world, there has been a, uh, a lot of branches of psychotherapy. And in the beginning, uh, for the first several decades of psychotherapy with psychoanalysis and cognitive behavioral therapy, there was a lot of that kind of attitude where the clinician knows what's best and the client doesn't necessarily know what's best, and the clinician is there to guide the client on on how to uh, better the client's life. Well, with the advent of systems theory and and the advent of feminism within um, uh, psychotherapy, and uh, with a number of figures like Milton Erickson and DeShazer and these sorts of people, there was a a minor movement within psychotherapy, which said that, look, we need to stop this top down type of therapy. We need to start empowering clients and we need to stop this, this sort of patriarchal uh, mentality of telling people what to do or acting like we know more than them. And let me demonstrate for you a type of therapy that is very collaborative, that is very brief, that is economical that is not insulting to clients, that doesn't keep clients dependent. Let me demonstrate a style of therapy to you that is very powerful. And it, it was a, a uh, I'm, you know, I utilize uh, these sorts of therapies all the time. I call them collaborative therapies or brief therapies, or sometimes they're called postmodern therapies. Uh, there's various different therapies associated with a strategic, uh, structural, uh, solution, focus, solution oriented narrative. Um, there, there's others, but, and, and motivational interviewing, I think was influenced by this. I, I don't know that for sure, but it, it motivational interviewing is very similar to solution focused therapy, but in actuality, motivational interviewing has a key difference. And, and, and let me tell you the difference. When people started, so solution-focused therapy, uh, a major tenet of solution-focused therapy is that the clinician never knows what's best for the client and that the client is the only one that knows what's best for the client. The client is the only one who has solutions uh, to their problems. Let me, and let me demonstrate solution-focused just for a second. So um, someone comes in and says, I'll just give a simple example. I, you know, they'll say I'm depressed. Or no, a better example would be a, a couple's therapy situation. So a couple comes in and they say, we're about to divorce, we fight all the time. And the solution-focused therapist would say, 
well, um, and you know, and say the client is like, okay, clinician, therapist, couples therapist, tell us what to do. Tell us how to communicate better. And the therapist would say, okay, well, before I, before I do that, let, let me, let me ask you a few questions. When was the last time you got along well, you know, tell me the last time you got along well. And there's, and so the, the couple will think, well, that's, I don't know. It's hard to remember. Well, you know, think hard, try to, try to come up with something that, uh, an example of a time where you got along well, well, there was uh, a couple months ago, we were on vacation in Hawaii. And I remember there's this one day where it was really great. We didn't fight at all. And it, w- it was a great time. And so the therapist will say, will say oh, okay, so you're clearly capable of doing what it takes to get along. What did you do during that time to achieve what you want to achieve all the time, which is, which is low conflict and more intimacy? And the couple will say, well, I don't know. I don't really remember what we did. Well, let's, let's think hard. Let's think hard about that. You know what? You're in Hawaii. Uh, what did you do when you first woke up that day? Well, I, I remember, it, you know, it was, we're on vacation. So I was happy. I was in a good mood. I didn't have work stress. And I wanted to make it a good day. Oh, okay. So it sounds like when you want to make it a good day, that, that might lead to certain things happening so that you and your spouse get along better. And the conversation can go on for a long time. It can go on for weeks around that. And you, you can start identifying several different behaviors that they do, this couple uh, does, to make things go well for them. And the therapist, all the while, never says anything like, well, have you tried this? Or may I recommend this? Or let me tell you how to communicate better. Or maybe you shouldn't do this. Or maybe you should do this. The the solution-focused, postmodern, brief therapist never, ever says anything along those lines. They they abhor uh, saying things like that, and they abhor even thinking that they know what's best for the client. They... They want to not only uh, demonstrate, but they want to believe in their soul that the client is the one with the answers. The therapist is not the one with the answers. And as soon as the therapist believes they have the answers, it, it, it compromises the therapy. It pushes clients into this subservient position and prevents clients from enacting their own solutions to their own problems and keeps people in therapy. Now, I don't believe those uh, extreme views, but I absolutely <clears throat> see the benefit of solution-focused therapy and postmodern therapies. There's, it's a wonderful uh, movement in psychotherapy that has. You know, I, if I was to say a percentage, I would say I'm probably a third uh, of of my perspective or a quarter is within the collaborative therapies. I, I utilize it all the time. I, I find it extremely useful and uh, inventive and, and and elegant because you don't have to think too hard about it. Okay, so that I hope that demonstrates. It's kind of complicated, and if you're not in the psychotherapeutic world, you might not quite get what I'm saying, but if you are, you probably do. Now, the not to insult you non-therapists out there, but the, the, the thing is, is uh, the the knowledge of, of psychotherapy models outside of psychotherapy, uh, you know, for the lay people, um, isn't, isn't very high in my experience. So not to insult you, it's just, it's just normal. that (laughs) 
Um, anyway, okay. So motivational interviewing, I think, uh, it's just my estimation, was uh, the the substance abuse version of solution focused therapy. It looks very similar to that, and motivational interviewing, what you know, is, is essentially it's collaborative, it's it's empathic, you know. So so someone comes in to uh, you know substance abuse again, the alcoholic. And instead of saying things like, hey, we've been over this, or let me teach you some skills, or let me convince you why you shouldn't be drinking, it, you know, there wouldn't be any kind of um, any kind of mode like that. It would be asking questions like, oh, okay, so so you drank. Well, what do you think about it? And, and the client would say, well, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm feeling like maybe I've kicked the habit and maybe I can drink socially every every now and then. And then the counselor says, okay, so you're, you're feeling like maybe you can drink. You're feeling like, like maybe you've kicked the habit and, and you can drink. And the client says, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I've been sober for a couple years now and maybe, maybe I can start drinking again. Maybe it's okay. And the counselor, and the counselor says, yeah, okay. So, you know, and so that the, it's very collaborative. And then the, the motivational interviewing part comes in in that the, uh, it's, mo- it's called motivational interviewing presumably because you're interviewing the client while you're trying to increase natural motivation. You're not, trying, you're, not, you're not cheerleading the person or you're not trying to tell the person what to do. You're trying to interview them in such a way that they become self-motivated to sobriety. And it works, you know, it's motivational interviewing absolutely works. It's, it's complicated. And I, I don't know if I can really summarize exactly, um, you know, the full breadth of it. You really have to see it in action and take a bunch of classes and get coached on it. It's, it's kind of complicated and you, you can easily, if you're not used to solution focused, uh, collaborative therapies or motivational interviewing, you can easily fall out of that mode and into, um, a mode that is counter to motivational interviewing. You know, it, it essentially, let me see if I can demonstrate kind of a, a moment where, where things start turning for a client. So with the alcoholic, it's like, okay, so the counselor saying, okay, so you feel like you can drink and the client is saying, yeah, yeah, I feel like I can drink. And then say, say you wait until the next session and, and you say, okay, so how are things, how are things going? And, and the client says, oh, you know, okay, I guess. Okay. Well, how's, how's alcohol in your life? Well, the client says, well, I, you know, I, I drank uh, a few times and, uh, you know, I feel like things are going okay. And the counselor says, oh, so, okay. So you feel like things are going okay, but it sounds like maybe you're hesitating a little bit. And the client says, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't intend on drinking three times. I thought, in fact, I didn't intend on drinking at all this past week, but I went to this dinner party and there was alcohol there. And so I, you know, I drank and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to think about it. And the, and, and so instead of the counselor saying, see, I told you, this is why you don't drink, <laughs> which I have seen before. I've seen counselors absolutely, uh, have that kind of attitude with their clients. The motivational interviewing person would say, okay, so, so you're drinking, you sound, so you're, you're telling me that you drank three times and you are 
you don't know what to think about it. You're a little confused. Uh, tell me more about that. And so through that conversation, the client might end up saying something like, maybe, maybe a little bit of drinking actually leads to a lot of drinking for me. And then the counselor says, okay, so that's what you're saying. That, that, that sounds like a reasonable uh, conclusion. Um, tell me more about that. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's allowing the client the space to develop their own ahas and their own, and their own motivation. The, the key difference between motivational interviewing and solution-focused collaborative therapies is that in motivational interviewing, the chemical dependency counselor in their soul understands what's best. The, the chemical dependency counselor never says to themselves internally, well, I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, maybe this person can drink. I don't know. No, mo- uh, chemical dependency counselors, I've never met a chemical dependency counselor who said that. Now, I'm sure they exist, but chemical dependency counselors in general in their heart, they, they, have a, they have a fairly, you know, realistic, shall we say, idea about, about substance use and, and addiction. They have seen people play around with social drinking or, you know, a little bit of cocaine use uh, their entire careers and maybe even their entire lives. And they know that for, for addicts, they cannot just use a little bit. They also know that substance use and abuse and, and addiction is progressive and it just gets worse over time. So they, they've seen so many things happen so many times that they don't, they don't believe clients when they say, you know, you have an alcoholic that had a massive problem with alcohol for 20 years and has been sober for a couple of years and then says, well, maybe I can social drink, you know, 99.99% of of chemical dependency counselors would in their head silently believe that this client is in denial and the client is, is not accurate in their prediction that they can drink socially. Um, so, uh, the, the diff, so that's a big difference because for solution focused people, they would never even in their mind think that they knew what was best for the client. So now whether or not that, plays out in the therapy is uh, unclear. If you, as a motivational interviewer, interviewer, you're talking to, you know, this fellow who uh, was sober for a while and is, and is trying to drink socially. If you, as a motivational interviewer, believe this guy needs to stop drinking or else things are going to get worse. If you believe that in your soul, does that uh, influence your attitude and the way you approach the client? You know, maybe, maybe not. But for solution for solution focused people and uh, and me because I adhere to this often, I would never in my mind even think that I knew what was best, even if it was quite obvious to many people. Not because I'm stupid or I don't learn from experience, but because when I start believing I know the answer and I know what's best for a client it starts to create, at least internally, a battle between me and them where I'm trying to get them to do something rather than allowing them the space to figure it out for themselves. And incidentally, solution-focused people will point this out all the time in that 
when you allow clients to figure out solutions for themselves, some often they will come up with solutions that you never would have thought of. It's actually really quite strange to see it in action. And I've seen it thousands of times personally. When I give clients the space to figure out their own solutions, they come up with solutions that I never would have thought would have worked, you know, and, and they'll, you know, in couples, I'm trying to think of a, an example in couples therapy where they, you know, we're working on how they can communicate better and how they can reduce their conflict. And, and I have thoughts in my mind as to what I think they should be doing, but I allow them the space to figure it out. And then they, they come up with a very creative, very interesting solutions that uh, I wouldn't have thought of myself. And so that's another benefit to collaborative therapies is it is it you don't necessarily have to come up with the answer and <clears throat> if you do the therapy right it it really allows the space for clients to develop uh, their own solutions so so that's the the big difference between motivational interviewing and solution focused therapy and collaborative therapies um, again just to reiterate it motivational interviewing people in their heart they are actually trying to get the client to go in a particular direction. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's the way it was taught to me. And, and that's, uh, you know, the difference between chemical dependency treatment and psychotherapy. Traditionally, and to a very large extent today, chemical dependency uh, treatment is, is uh, you know, it's an effort of trying to get people to be sober, and there, you know, there's, there's, um, harm reduction therapies as well, but the ultimate goal is, um, to, to help people to reduce their use at the very least and, and hopefully sobriety. Whereas with collaborative therapies, there is no goal to, to, to the therapy. There's no, <clears throat> the goal is what the client wants, whatever the client wants, that's what the client should move toward. And so, uh, and of course, there are perhaps problems with that as well. But but anyway, so that that's a big difference between motivational interviewing and um, and solution focused. And so, patron Joe is asking. Say he says, "I'm a licensed master's level psychologist working with some." It's interesting, licensed master's level psychologist. I think that's actually you have to be outside of the United States to be a master's level psychologist. But anyway working with some difficult teen clients and believe that motivational interviewing could be very useful to help them decrease some of their symptoms and initiate change behavior. Yes, absolutely. Motivational interviewing uh, is very effective with what we call resistant clients. And so is collaborative therapies. A lot of clients are quote unquote resistant, particularly teenagers, right? Because the vast majority of teens do not want to be in therapy and they're, they're forced into it for some reason. And motivational interviewing is a wonderful way to uh, s sort of separate yourself from an authoritarian uh, mode with, with your teenage clients. You know, you have a teenage client that's smoking pot all day long, uh, skipping school, running away at night and, you know, driving while drunk and, you know, just bad grades and hanging out with weird people. And you are tasked with trying to get this kid under control. Well, if all you do is sit there and yell at the kid and say, stop skipping school, don't use pot, 
you know, how far are you going to get? You're going to get nowhere. But if you take a more collaborative, empathic, motivational interviewing uh, mode with the teenager, then things are at least more tolerable in therapy and at best are is, is more effective. Having said that, again, there's a big difference between motivational interviewing with a teenager and being solution-focused or collaborative with a teenager. The motivational interviewer of a teenager, the clinician knows what's best for the teenager. The collaborative therapist does not know what's best for the teenager. And I, I personally believe that uh, the collaborative therapy mode is superior to the motivational interviewing mode. I, it's probably clear from the way I'm talking about it. To believe truly in your heart and not, and I talk with a lot of supervisees about this. It's, it's not just hiding your judgment or hiding your thoughts about what's best for the client. It's about truly in your heart believing that you do not know what's best for other people. We're socialized, I think, to be judgmental. We're socialized to believe we know what's best for people. That's the whole premise of reality TV is to watch others and judge them and and think, oh, I wouldn't have done that. That's stupid. So we're we're socialized to do that, but the that can be very destructive as a therapist because it threatens your relationship with the client, which is the most important thing and the most important agent of change. When when we're uh, telling people what to do or even giving the impression that we want the client to do something, it it creates a, a distance it and it and it can cause resistance on behalf of the client because they're 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 getting the picture that that you don't really respect them or that you think what's best or you're not really on their side. And so um, that's the that's the freedom of being a therapist is you know, when you're a teacher or when you're a parent or a police officer or, or an older sibling, you have a role to play. You, you can't just let kids do whatever they want. But as a therapist, you're not in authority over teenagers and therefore have no uh, restrictions. And so you can be fully on board with a teenage client that is skipping school and smoking pot. There's, there's nothing wrong with just saying, okay, well, that's fine with me. What, you know, what do you want to talk about today? What do you want to work on? The, the, uh, solution focused mode is, uh, again, very helpful in, in that situation. You know, so you're talking to a teenager and teenager comes in and says, uh, well, you know, Hey, and, and you know, and the, and, you know, I've been in this situation thousands of times and, you know, I might say, so how are things going? And the teenager says, I don't know. I don't know. It's just not, I don't even know why I'm here. It's stupid. And uh, then I might say, okay. So, so in that moment, there's a temptation to say, well, the reason why you're here is because you're skipping school and you're smoking pot all the time and you're getting in trouble. Don't, you know, don't you think you should be talking about that? That's absolutely an impulse that a lot of therapists will have and a lot of uh, therapists will act on that impulse. Well, what I could do and what other collaborative therapists would do and a lot of therapists that work well with teenagers will do is they'll say, okay, well, so you don't want to be in therapy. That's cool. Um, you know, how uh, do you think you're going to be forced to get to come here all the time? And 
the client, yeah, you know, my parents are saying if I don't come to you every week, you know, they're going to kick me out of the house or they're going to take legal action against me. And so, so that's why I'm here, but I'm not going to talk up. So, you know, don't, don't expect me to do anything. And then I might say something like, okay, well, I can dig that. Um, you don't want to be in therapy and therapy is a voluntary thing. And so I'm not going to make you do anything because it's not my style and it's not really what therapy is for. But since you don't, uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, do you, if you could, would you like to not be in therapy? And the client would say, well, yeah, obviously, duh. I say, okay, well, how do you think you can get out of being in therapy? What, what do you think you need to do to do to get out of therapy? Because it sounds like you have a goal of not being in therapy, right? Yeah, I have a goal of not being in therapy. Okay, well, how, how do you think you can reach that goal? Well, I don't know. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. What, what do you think you're going to have to do to, uh, to get out of therapy? Well, I'm going to have to get my parents to get off my back. Oh, okay. So when was the last time your parents were off your back? So you might go down that road of trying to figure out a time when things were better for him. Or you say, okay, well, what do you think? How do you think you can get there? Let's say in a month from now, your parents are off your back and they don't, you know, they're not forcing you to go to, go to therapy anymore. What do you think you need to do today and tomorrow to, to pro progress toward that, toward that goal? And the teenager might say, I don't know, you know, but then you go back and forth and say, well, you know, and so it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of diplomacy and a lot of skill and in, in talking with resistant clients to, to, uh, get people on board. But eventually, you know, the client might say something like, well, that, I don't know, maybe if I didn't, uh, have such an attitude at home that that might help. Oh, okay. So not having an attitude. You're saying that would help. Yeah, I, well, that, that might help, but sometimes it's so hard because I hate my parents and da, da da. Okay. So it's, it's hard sometimes, but you're saying that if you don't have such an attitude, then that'll help get your parents off your back, which will help you not to be in therapy anymore. So that is a solution focused example. It's also a motivational interviewing example, but the motivational interviewing person in their mind in all likelihood is thinking this, this kid needs to shape up. This kid needs to stop smoking pot. This kid needs to, but I'm not going to hit the kid over the head with it. I'm going to allow the kid the space to explore and I'm going to increase motivation through my interviewing techniques. Whereas a solution focused therapist has, doesn't even care what the client does and, and is totally allowing the client to define what they want to do with their life. So now some people will say, well, there's problems with that because if you're truly solution focused, you know, what if, what if the teenager says, well, one way to get my parents off my back is I'm going to kill them. I'm going to, I'm going to kill my parents or I'm going to run away and I'm going to live on the streets and I'm going to be, or I'm going to become a prostitute or something, you know, and the solution focused therapist, be, because in their heart, they allow clients to come up with their own solutions. Presumably might say, okay, well, so what do you got to do to become a prostitute on the street? And so that's a, you know, I could go on and on about the debate about um, all of that. Um, solution focused people have ways of responding to that question because they get it sometimes. But anyway, so that's my motivational interviewing uh, bit there. Patron Joe, I hope that helps. Um, 
yeah, difficult teens, uh, it, it definitely is, is helpful motivational interviewing. And frankly, as I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, it makes our jobs a lot more enjoyable because it releases us. It's a mode of therapy that releases us from having to convince people of something that they're very resistant to being convinced of. When I was early in my career and I wasn't so great at solution focused stuff yet, I had a lot of frustrating client, uh, a lot of frustrating sessions with teenage clients and adult clients for that matter. Just trying to like wrestle with them to get them to agree to something, you know. Now I would, I was never a dick about it, but you know, I'd, I'd go, I'd, I was really trying to lay out evidence of like, well. You know, if, if you stop smoking pot, then that's going to help with your grades. And then, you know, everyone needs to do well in school because if you want a good career, you're going to have to do well. In, you know, like a lot of talk like that. And that's usually not effective because they already know that information. They tune you out. They start seeing you as just a pawn of their parents and of the man and it's just it's just not helpful and it's very frustrating as a therapist because you're just beating your head against this wall and the client's like fuck off you're dumb whereas when you're doing collaborative therapies it completely releases the mode completely releases you from having to take responsibility for uh you know for the client's behavior and it and it it just completely ends that beating the head against the wall because as soon as the client says something like, well, I don't know, this, I think this conversation is stupid, then you're just like, okay, well, what would you like to talk about? Like, it's, it's totally collaborative. You, you never say to a client, well, I think you should be talking about this. You just, you just roll with whatever the client does and, and highlight their, their power and, and highlight what goals they have in life and, and what they want to do uh, to get there. So anyway, all right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. If you haven't already, please become a patron. We have some new patrons by the name of Eli, whom I know personally, and we have others. It's always great when like a friend of mine becomes a, a podcast patron, um, which, uh, you know, is always very suite of friends to do. Uh, we have Peter or Petter. There's, there's two T's in, in probably Peter, Kim, Jason, Lindsay. Oh, I know Lindsay, uh, Leslie, Patty, Andre, Mara. Thanks so much for becoming patrons lately. Uh, we love you so much. Well, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and take care of others because We all deserve it.